0: Hello everyone and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, uplevel your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're giving you all the tools you need for optimizing egg quality with our amazing guest, renowned women's health and fertility detective, celebrity acupuncturist, and best-selling author, Amy Raup. Amy is the author of several books, many are my favorites, including Chill Out and Get Healthy, Yes, You Can Get Pregnant, Body Belief, and The Egg Quality Diet. As a fertility detective with two decades of experience, Amy works virtually with clients all over the world, as well as in her private practice in New York and Connecticut. She engages her community worldwide through her social media presence, online programs, and her website, amyraup.com. We're so fortunate to have her with us today, someone I truly admire. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much for having me, Kalia. I'm so happy and honored to be here. Thank you. You and I both love to talk about the health of our egg cells, and I so admire the way that you really educate and empower your clients to take charge of their fertility and really focus on the health of their eggs, which we know extends into the health of their whole body. So I wanted to start today with this question that I get all the time. You know, We hear physicians say there's nothing you can do to change your egg quality. What's done is done. And I was hoping we could just start out getting your perspective on that topic.
1: Well, if we're also told by the same physicians that we could heal from diabetes or heal from heart disease or even heal from cancer or other um, conditions, why can't we improve the cells of the Uh, in our ovaries, you know, the the cells of the eggs in our ovaries. And so that's always been my argument for the long haul. And, you know, it it just goes against every other premise in medicine that that we actually can heal, or there are these medications that can promote healing. So if, if taken from that context of if we can heal on a cellular level with other disease states, why can't we heal and improve ourselves. It's like there's a whole world of medicine now, regenerative medicine, it's called, I believe is, is the, the name these days. It's focused on anti-aging and the regenerative powers and healing of the body. And this is medically founded, you know, with sound research behind it. And and showing that how we live our life determines how we age and the rate at which we age, and so the whole thing with with egg quality is about aging. And there are and you know you and I both see this clinically. I can see a thirty five year old that's healthier than a twenty five year old, right? And so it's it's more about your biological and your physiological age than it is your chronological age. And that's not to say that. Fertility doesn't decline as we age. I I always like to use the analogy that the the pipes get clogged more easily as we get older. And so I think we have to be a little more aggressive the older we get with with the action steps we take to optimize cellular health and mitochondrial function. But it's still very possible. And so this argument that we can't improve our egg quality is not sound there's no scientific data to actually back that up. I think if anything, yes, as we age, the inflammatory reactions and inflammatory responses in the body and this oxidation, oxidative stress and oxidative damage takes hold, of course, and it's harder to
0: reverse that as we age, but it's not impossible. That's such a great point. I haven't really thought about it that Frankly, that why do we say as someone's aging, we we never tell them, "Well, you'll never be able to build muscle mass, or no, ever. your heart will or never be
1: restore your bones,
0: osteopenia, right? No, yeah. here, you know, do weight
1: bearing exercise, improve the calcium intake in your diet, and you can reverse osteopenia. So why the heck can't you, you know, and it's and I've heard someone say recently, a patient of mine that maybe a doctor said to her of like, oh, well, the ovaries are in a black box and they're, they just function differently than the rest of the body. And I was like, where on earth did they find that information? And I would like to actually see that data that says the ovaries are in a black box because no, no, ovarian health has everything to do with blood flow, circulation, reducing inflammation, um, the health of the hormones in the body, which has everything to do with gut health, has everything to do with stress. Right. So, no. And and we see it time and again. Right. I have had countless patients at this point that started trying to conceive in their mid to late 30s and were having no success, then overhauled their diet, their lifestyle, their supplements, their mindset, all the things. And at 43, we're making healthy embryos. Right. Or, or 45 after IVF, they they stopped doing it, then go on to have healthy children. So um, you, you can do it. And I think, sure, maybe maybe the odds start to slightly go this way against or not in your favor as we get older. But even still, I just did a post the other, I think last week, there's a huge study that came out on oo um, site quality. It was it was done, 20,000 eggs were collected, over 3,000 and some odd IVF cycles, women ranging, the average age was 38 But anyway, what they saw, so these eggs were donated for PGG testing, for for genetic analysis. What they saw was that um, below the age of 35, it was about, I think, 20 to 30% of the eggs were abnormal. The rest were normal. So give that 70%, 60%. But even upwards of the age of 40, there was still about... 50% 50% were normal, 50% were abnormal. And the, the study ended at 43 plus because they just didn't you know, go above that. And even at 43 plus, 40% of the eggs were still normal. Now, these were eggs not fertilized with sperm. So that might change things. But then it also layers in of like, because sperm factor plays a right. huge role. But, <clears throat> but our eggs as a whole in the lot, in the ovaries, regardless of AMH, regardless of FSH- in there, we still have, you know, even if you want to call it and you want to err on the side of caution, women in their mid-40s probably still have 20 to 30% of their eggs are still good. And depending on that, you know, so it's, I don't know. Um, and then I think, too, you, you have a lot in your power that you can do, you know basic things that you can do to start reducing environmental toxin exposure and pesticide exposure and stress level exposure and inflammation in your diet. And and then you'll improve cellular mitochondrial function. So we know we can do that from regenerative medicine perspective. We absolutely know we can hack our bodies and age um, more slowly, I guess is the best way to put it. And so why, why couldn't we do that in this stage of fertility? Of
0: course we could. You're making me feel fired up about this topic. Yes, yes, to everything you've said. And isn't it curious if we can't improve our egg quality? We know that we'll have patients, they'll go through egg retrieval and like none of them will fertilize. We take three six month, three to six months, we do all the work, the mitochondrial support, reduce the toxic exposures, and then they have all these eggs fertilized and become healthy yep. prosthesis, right? So it seems to me like it's helping. It's helping.
1: It's helping. And I think also we have to look at other things of like the medications used in the IVF protocols. Like, you know, sometimes I think too many meds kind of fry the eggs a little bit. I've heard that. I have heard that twice today. Actually, I was just in the fertility clinic seeing patients and, um, you know, and even the fertility doctor that I work very closely with, he'll use that term too of like, oh, well, they fried your eggs. That's why you got no blast. Like a woman your age, there's no, you can't handle 450. Like, I don't know why that doctor would have given you that. So you have to also keep that in mind too but the way i look at that too is with the meds is if we lessen the burden on their liver via the diet changes via the supplement changes via the lifestyle changes they can then manage and process those meds more effectively too right and so to think about that of like it, it's it's a systemic process whereas the western world of fertility has really isolated it to just below the belt and and your fsh and and that's it you know and you're in your off you go um and it's I don't know. It's very disempowering, which is why, you know, you and I are both um, on our soapbox as much as we possibly can be trying to empower women and and sharing. Sure, they're anecdotal stories, but like they start to add up after a while when when you accumulate anecdote after anecdote after anecdote and you have these women varying ages with varying AMHs and FSHs and all being told the same thing. Your egg quality is all bad. Even if you're 35 or you're 45, you have one percent chance, 35 or 45. And then we see the transformation. It just becomes very very hard to subscribe to that um, dogma.
0: Yes. And I've always thought, you know, as we support the health of the granulosa cells, those little helper cells that surround our egg cells with the great circulation and the nutrients and the antioxidants, I feel pretty confident while I've never seen any research that says this exactly, that we're making those cells more receptive to the hormonal signals. So maybe someone will need less meds hundred percent. Well, and I think I think that is the case for most
1: women is you get the same results with a lot less meds and then the meds are not compromising the quality. I just had one woman and she's in her late 30s. She did the half, exactly half the dose that she did a previous retrieval and got the exact same result. So she still got one normal and they were able to retrieve, I think, four and three made it to day five and three were tested and one came back normal or something like that. But the year, a year prior to, so she was a year younger, twice as many meds, same exact results. And she was just, she felt great during this IVF cycle because she was on less meds, but I couldn't agree more. And obviously she's been doing the work with, with me and following, you know, the, the lifestyle protocols. And I do think, I think the body becomes much more receptive and and we know too, I mean, we just improve the the health of every single cell in the body.
0: Isn't it going to just do its job better? Absolutely. For our listeners who might be thinking right now, oh, how do I know if I need to focus on the health of my eggs? Are there any signs or symptoms or lifestyle factors that you're thinking about to kind of clue us in that we should give our egg cells a little extra love? I always look for
1: when I do my intakes, which I'm sure you do the same of like GI symptoms. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you poop every day? What is that poop like? It should be formed, easy to pass. You should go once, two, maybe three times a day. depends. But um, so I'll look at GI symptoms. If you get a lot of gas and bloating or really just uncomfortable, I mean, I have girls that are like, oh, I poop twice a week. I'm like, oh, okay. That's a sign of obviously poor elimination. And also the body's probably pretty toxic. So I'll look at GI symptoms. I'll look at, um, skin issues, eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, um, the, the little bumps, sort of the cataris. what is it? Mm-hmm. Polaris, catara, mm-hmm. or whatever it's called. Um. So skin issues, headaches, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but to me obviously, maybe do you obviously menstrual pain, um debilitating menstrual pain, pain with sex, pain with pooping, um pain with orgasms, pain with ovulation, pain with HSG. I will automatically think those are signs and I'm not trying to diagnose anyone without seeing them, but those are usually signs of endometriosis, which is an inflammatory condition, which we know for certain is compromising that quality because it's such an inflammatory process and it's systemic inflammation in the body. So that, that's another place where I'll put it, you know, and then any other kind of like brain fog, fatigue, low energy. So there's lots of symptoms. I mean, in my books, I have symptom checklists. I think in the book, Egg Quality Diet, there's probably like 90 or 80 some odd symptoms. And I say, if you're checking off, if you experience more than five of these on a weekly basis, it's a sign that inflammation and or autoimmunity are impacting your body. And we need to do some uh, deeper diving on your case. And typically, you know, that I mean, that's how I work too, of like, I want to see what I would call those red flags or those kinks start to shift. That then tells me cellularly re- inflammation is being reduced. The cells are starting to function better. Um, and even if you get a period, I want to see like, has the color changed? Are there less clots? Is it, you know, less clumpy and goopy and more, you know, watery, bright red blood and not watered down looking blood, but more like it flows like water is what I would try to say um so those all then tell me that we're moving in the right direction that overall health is improving and that fertility is an extension of health and it is it's really like the body will say i have all these other fires to put out i cannot focus on fertility right now fertility and and no one really likes to hear this and i always kind of feel guilty when i say it but like fertility is a luxury it is the body saying i have a plethora of energy and resources that i can then go and make another human and if if we're dealing with fertility challenges, that's the body also saying, I got some other things going on that I can't really focus my energy there. So I need overall healing in the body. And so I think the two do go hand in hand. And that's why we see the women that are going to IVF clinics who are having challenges at home, trying to conceive are, are typically dealing with some other health conditions that if they had been addressed prior, maybe they didn't need fertility treatments. And then maybe we wouldn't have the data we have on this population that, yeah, every woman over the age of 35 that makes her way to a fertility clinic has compromised egg quality. Um, But, you know, and I think what's missing though from there is that you could also do a complete overhaul on things. And you'll see that even as you get chronologically older, you can get cellularly younger.
0: Well, I think what you're bringing up for me, a couple of things, but many of the pathways that affect the health of our fertility are also physiologically linked to our our other body systems, putting us at higher risk for heart disease and osteoporosis and breast cancer and cognitive decline. And so of course, when we don't address those underlying factors, we're going to see dysfunction in both symptoms, both systems. So you You kind of brought up so many of the reasons or the the underlying drivers of fertility struggles that bring patients into my office, autoimmunity, oxidative stress, chronic inflammation, and ovulation for a number of reasons. But I'm sure this comes up in your practice as well. i'll I'll have patients they come in, they want to do a preconception screen and they say, i want to start I want to start trying to conceive next month." But we know that it takes some time to unwind some of these chronic processes. So when you're working with patients, how do you, how do you counsel them and advise them about this timeline and how long should we work to really support the quality of our eggs before we start to try to conceive?
1: Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I have been doing this so long that like, I, I used to have very firm timelines and now I'm kind of like, I'll get you. I see you. I meet you where yeah. you're at. I do always remind them, you know, it takes a hundred days to improve the quality of our eggs. So ideally you're going to follow this protocol for at least three months. However, you know, I mean, I had a woman this morning in the clinic and she just had her third loss. Right. And, and she's got three doctors telling her, even at the age of 35, it's all your egg quality. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, absolutely not. It's not your egg quality. Three losses in a row, something going on with your uterus. And then she also saw another fertility doctor who agreed with, with me in the sense of like, it's not egg quality. But anyway, the, the point being, she is in a flurry. Like she is like, when can I try it? Me, when can, how soon can I try? So uh-huh. I'm trying to meet her in the middle. I was like, listen, I said to her today, some is better than none. Like, and if we start, and we already started all the protocols. So by the time we actually ovulate, the next time we can try, it'll be almost eight weeks into this protocol. I'm like, "That, that's okay. However, if we sustain another loss or we do through, then what are you going to get me? So I try to meet them where they're at. And of course, also always, if they're in a heterosexual couple and they're trying with that partner, also try to get the partner on board as much as I can. Um, but ideally we're getting 100 days, three months, somewhere around there, but sometimes I get girls and they're going to start their next retrieval cycle in eight weeks, and I still think, again, like I said, some is better than none, especially if um, maybe we're not transferring right away. Maybe we're starting a round of retrievals and we're harvesting eggs. That That's kind of a different protocol, but generally speaking, uh, you know, and then also I'll get women who are planning like similar to you, the preconception. So if they're on the pill, I say you have to go off the pill six to nine months before trying to conceive so we can restore normal ovulatory function. Um, The data shows us that we need that amount of time, but then also, yeah, I want you to start planning ahead. Like I want this, like I think about myself, I conceived my son at 40, but I had been planning that conception kind of even before I met my husband, if you will, like I was living the life for several years, you know, with with like it being human, I would say like the 20 rule as much as I could. But um, I was very much in preconception mode, you know. And others were saying to me, "You should freeze your eggs. You should freeze your eggs." And I was like, "No, no, no. My eggs are fine. I, I can keep them in there. I'm gonna do my work, and I'm gonna, you know, do it this way instead." And so I do think if you can give yourself six to nine months, I think that's a beautiful time frame but the
0: minimum two to three months. I'm very into this concept of living the fertility-friendly lifestyle. So it just becomes habitual. That's it. It's, it's just your life. Like you yeah.
1: should go non-toxic. Every woman on the planet should be non-toxic with her bath and beauty products we it's clear in the data these bath and beauty products have endocrine disrupting chemicals they are doing damage whether you want to have more children or not or you ever want to have children if you want to avoid cancers if you want like you should not you should be non-toxic with your bath period no one should eat in my opinion um non-organic gluten or wheat products in the united states or soy or dairy like i'm sorry it's just a, it's just a blanket statement it, like my household my you know like we have different um goals that we're trying to achieve but it's still the same thing point blank this is how we know these chemicals in the environment are doing a lot of harm. And so, again, even if it's the 80-20 rule, which I definitely live, these should be standard practice for everybody. And, and those small changes, like honestly, and you probably see it too, like I make this small dietary shifts, right? And sometimes it's not so much about what we're removing. We focus on what we can add in and we just try to go organic or low pesticide, Um you see major shifts, major shifts in, in, in health and even just skin conditions and digestive and energy and sleep. And those are all signs that are telling us the body's getting more and more energy to now put towards fertility.
0: I think this is, like you're mentioning, it's a really important conversation for fertility and beyond. And in at, when I was doing primary care and I'm seeing young women for their annual exams, I'm asking them, do you want to have children? What's your trajectory like? Let's start talking about this now, maybe when you're 22, so that when you're 30 and 35, it's just natural to you. You already know what to do. Well, that's
1: what I noticed clinically too, was, um, you know, I'd say probably 15 years ago in my practice, a lot of the women that were coming to see me, it was more general primary care, you know, GI issues, anxiety, sleep issues. And so I was working with them and they were maybe just getting married or thinking about relationships or whatever. And then I noticed that by the time they wanted to have children, these women were just kind of busting them out, you know, and I was like, Hmm, this is interesting. Yet I have these fertility clients. And so I just started going to do the same exact approach with the fertility clients. Like I was like, okay, I'm actually going to go way back. I'm going back to the basics because a lot of like our continuing ed is like, okay, these are the, you know, the herbs for fertility. This is the protocol for fertility. And it was like, we get, we're getting lost like the way Western medicine gets lost where we're really stuck on protocols versus individuals. Right. And so when I shifted that, that's when I saw the biggest change. Um, and I also think to your point too, of like the plan and the trajectory, I, I, similar to what I said before about a timeline, like I always really try to get to the nuts and bolts of that with my clients. Cause that, that emotional piece is also really, uh, it's a part of your identity and it's, it's a part of how every choice you make. And so if they're in this kind of rush, 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 you know, type of phase, or I, I'm running out of time, I'm running out of time. It's, it's, it's kind of like collecting them and being like, okay, like, like today, one of my patients, the one who had the losses, it was like, I, I said to her, I'm like, I want to think about this in buckets. The first bucket is we need some more testing. So that's bucket number one. We're just going to, we're going to stay in bucket number one for the next month. We're not making any future decisions about fertility right now. Like you're contrary to what Western medicine is constantly telling us in three months, your fertility is not going to fall off that cliff. And, and I think that helps too, from the time I'm, okay, so that's what I'm going to do that. My first focus is this. And so it's like, if we could encourage our clients to kind of start to look at that as like lifestyle overhaul in in a step-by-step process. We're collecting data. And I'll even say that to my patients who are trying, you know, newly trying. And when do I see a fertility doctor? I'm not pregnant. I'm like, okay, if you're not pregnant, you know, we, we figure that out kind of based on all the things, but I always say going to a fertility clinic doesn't mean you're doing ivf tomorrow it just means you're collecting more data i want mm-hmm. i want to know what your ovaries look like i want to know if we need a hysteroscopy i want to know if there's a cyst on your ovaries right like i, I want to know what your follicle count is it gives me a lot of information and then i can help you make the best plans but we don't have to jump to these next treatments it's more we're in data collection phase or we're in priming phase and preconception phase right so almost like really getting close to that that label and that identity for yourself and what feels comfortable in there for you.
0: And there's beauty in the information gathering stage. It's super valuable. It's not wasting time. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, and I feel I feel
1: like, uh, you know, like again, I keep going back to this case, but I just left the clinic. But like this woman's a primary example. If she goes and does IVF and gets a genetically normal and they transfer it, and we haven't looked inside her uterus or we haven't tested her for clotting factor issues. Wow. There's, I would say, there's a 98% chance she's going to miscarry a genetically normal embryo that she worked her ass off to make, right? And so that, we lose time there. So to that point, like, data collection is so important. And it's also I find, you know, and I I typically only deal with women really in the trenches of fertility trauma. It's such a traumatic experience that I find that if I kind of lay out for them of like, okay, we're going to collect the data here and we're going to make these changes here, so that when we go back to this, we're going to be able to say to ourselves, I've done X, Y, and Z, all different. And so I can feel confident to get different results, right? But if we keep doing the same thing over and over again, it's obviously we know what that is. That's insanity and it and it, it creates, I think it just keeps us in the trauma loop and we need to break that because we know trauma alone is highly inflammatory and will cause and wreak havoc on the entire system as well. And so even if it's not diet or lifestyle that needs to, or well, not diet or supplements that needs to change, just kind of setting them up for success from a trauma healing perspective is is really important.
0: There's some peace and peace of mind, I think, also when you know you've done something different. So you can you can hope for a different outcome. You did something different. Yeah. Well, as we're looking at interventions to help our egg quality, you wrote a whole book about this. So I'm sure that there's millions of things we could talk about. But are there a few things that you find you're implementing with almost every client you see?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I already said them, you know, uh, non-toxic bath and beauty products. Um, I, my general rule of thumb is like anything that you use on a daily basis, we need to know the ingredients of, and we need to look at them and we need to overhaul the things that you do once in a while. Like you go get your hair done every six to eight weeks, or you get your nails done, you know, I don't know. Maybe if you're getting them done weekly, I'll, I'll talk to you about nail polish and things like that and where you're getting them done. But um, but the daily things. So I want to, I want, I will change up bath and beauty products. I'll change up laundry detergent, dishwasher detergent, you know, all that stuff. All that stuff needs to change, uh, in my humble opinion. But when you start to do the research and you do research when you write books or you're, uh, you know, uh, an integrus clinician, you fall over at the data. Like it is appalling how much information we have out there on these thousands, I think there's 80,000 chemicals we've introduced into the environment since the 1980s. It's appalling that they're, they're not all illegal. It's absolutely appalling. So I start there. And then the same thing, I'll, I'll do the same education around food of like, let's just start making more conscious choices as much as we can when it comes to food. I know organic is more expensive. So we'll, we'll give options of like farmer's markets or Costco, or, you know, like there's, there's lots of places. Um, where we can go to get better quality food. And then I'll focus on, sometimes I have to remove depending on symptoms, but I really try to focus on what I'm adding. So we're, most patients aren't eating enough, point blank period across the board. So we're focusing on getting our our protein up and getting our veggies up, you know, and usually if we're eating nutrient dense protein, then we're getting plenty of good quality fats, but I'm always focused on things like choline and vitamin A, and like, where are we getting those from our food sources? And we know both of those are so important to egg quality, right? So so typically I'm going 80 to 100 grams of protein a day. It's kind of a good starting point. Some people obviously could use more, but most women, I mean, I feel like it ebbs and flows, but I'll see upwards of 10 food diaries a week. most people don't eat enough. They if if women are getting 40 to 60 grams of protein a day and then they're going huge gaps between eating. So those are like the the big cleanups that I'll do it first. And then I typically am doing food diaries and I'm seeing as symptoms change. And then I can kind of highlight and be like, oh, every time you have lima beans, look at you get loose bowels. Okay. We're going to cut those out. Do You know what I mean? Like I start to, I very, very, very detective, like my whole team, that's how we work. It's kind of Chinese medicine. I mean, it's very similar to functional medicine, but just that very, like really pay attention to X equals Y. And then how do we, you know, what variables are, are impacting that. Um, and then of course, sleep is just ridiculously important and it's free. Um, <laughs> we really need seven, to eight hours of sleep. you know. So it's like, the, those are kind of the high level, moving your body, obviously meditation, mindfulness, that kind of thing. But that can look different for everybody. I don't push that you have to sit and meditate 20 minutes twice a day. I mean, that's awesome. If you have the time and the space for that, I don't, but like getting out in nature, getting morning sunlight, you know, walking in nature, just like taking it in that kind of thing, slowing down. Um, So much of our society and especially women, I think in this day and age is just, and including myself, I really have to remind myself too, of like, it's just a go, go, go. And where is the time to slow and nourish?
0: Well, I'm so glad you brought up the budget piece because there's definitely a perception that if you want to support your egg quality, it's going to take hundreds of dollars of supplements. It's going to take all this fancy micronutrient testing, but you talk about some kind of budget friendly ways we can eat for our egg health. Will you share some of your top tips for supporting your fertility on a budget?
1: Yeah. I mean, and we, and we do it a lot too of like, I think number one, and I think this is not so budget oriented, but life oriented is starting to cook more. Mm. most people are like, I don't have time. I don't have time. But then once they figure out like, and so I, I'm a big pusher of like the batch cooking on Sundays or whatever yeah. free day you have or whatever, or like, like last night I made a bolognese pasta sauce. Right. And so just keep the sauce separate. And it's like, so I have, you know, and I keep the meat separate from the sauce. It's like, I have I have plenty of meat that I could eat later today if I wanted, you know, for part of one of my meals. So I try to have leftovers and my husband does the same. We have leftovers for lunch, usually for lunch the next day, dinner, you know, for whatever meal the next day. Um, so batch cooking, I do think I said before, farmer's markets, places like Costco. I mean, that's what's popular near me, but I know there's some other, you know, large kind of bulk buying places that actually have really good quality grass-fed organic produce and products. And so that's another great place to go and shop. I think places like Thrive Market, you know, I also do, I do a meat delivery. There's so many so many out there now that are great. And really, if you sit and do the math, I know I did in the beginning when we switched it's it it saved me like a couple hundred dollars a month then from just going to Whole Foods and like buying a steak for that night and also I love I always have protein in the house always have good quality protein whether it's fish or meat or chicken. And then I just need my good produce, right? Which I'll typically get from farmer's markets. Even Trader Joe's has some great organic produce. So I think there's so many places. Um, I'm a big fan of bone broth. So obviously making your own, I think is the cheapest way to do it. But then the, oh, there's also really good quality ones that you can buy. Frozen, um, I love there's some online ones. And where if you buy, you know, over $150 worth, it's free shipping, you know, so like you just kind of have to plan and be smart about it. and it's it's definitely possible and i think and then i also think with supplements too is like what the biggest thing i see is women are on too many and they're overspending and you know and like right i mean the thing i think across our world of like you can't out supplement a crappy diet or a crappy lifestyle and so to really i i pull back a lot i mean i just had a case she had 30 supplements she was taking and and like five of them were completely redundant like completely redundant And, you know, she's seeing some, you know, specialists that put her on all this based on her micronutrient testing. And I'm just like, "Uh." but food is your primary medicine. And so I think if you can really think about that food is my primary medicine, the soil is super compromised, even if we're eating organic. So we do need supplements, but keep it really basic. I think we need a good prenatal. We need a good omega-3. We need some vitamin D if we're low, we need a good probiotic, but we could also get that from food, right? Right. Uh, I don't know, some antioxidants, but you can also get that from food. So, you know, that's an uh, organ meats, which I'm a huge fan of from a Chinese medicine perspective. And I've talked about for a long time. Now we can get those in supplement form, but we can also, you know, throw that stuff into the mix when we're cooking. And um, anyway, I think there's a lot of ways we can do it. That is definitely on the cheap. And so for the cost of that one antioxidant, you know, fertility formula, you could probably have, you know, um, pay for half your meat subscription for the month.
0: Yeah. In my house, we'd have a strategy called things in a bowl with a sauce, because it allows it, you know, you cut up your greens, you roast a couple sheet pans of like root veggies, yeah. you have a grain, and then you have three different sauces. You could yeah. make endless combinations with that. Endless. I agree. I
1: agree. I agree. And that's it too. Of like, that's kind of how we are. It's just like, okay, here's what we have. And there's, you know, sometimes my son is like, oh, I'm just sick of, I'm like, well, this is the option. <laughs>
0: put it together, spice it up, Yeah, but it is, it, it
1: does require like a mindset shift, you know, and then I have a busy practice in New York city and I was a New Yorker for a long time. And I understand the hustle of city living. Um, I myself also cooked so much when I lived in New York, I was such an anomaly, but you know, getting, I also find that getting my patients to begin to cook more for themselves is such a beautiful act of nourishment and self-care. And it's often the first step required of like, okay, I'm coming back home to me. I'm going to take the time to slow down and nourish myself. And then you start to realize, I mean, with things like the instant pot or a crock pot or slow cookers, like I mean, you can make amazing dishes
0: and it requires minutes of your time. Right. Amy, you've given us so many tips for supporting the health of our eggs. And I think related to that is all of the education that you do for those who have experienced recurrent pregnancy loss, which is such a heartache and so tough. Will you share with us in your experience working the last two decades with clients who are experiencing this, what are some of the most common causes of recurrent pregnancy loss that we should have on our radar?
1: Um, clotting factor disorders, and most doctors say they ran a miscarriage panel on their patients. And then when I look at that miscarriage panel, maybe it has like five things it's checked for, and there should be 18, I think it's 18 on the, um, recurrent pregnancy loss panel, the RPL panel. If you go to amyrop.com slash miscarriage, I have the entire panel there. Um, I'm sure you have one too. Uh, so that's first, so like this case, for example, that I was just with today, you know, and and she's already also met with the reproductive endocrinologist at the clinic that I work at. And he, he said the same thing. Okay. You've had three losses since your, your child that you gave birth to. Um, she did have two losses before that, but the doctors are all now saying, you know, she was at like a fancy clinic and they were like, egg quality, egg quality, egg quality. And he was like, I can't say a quality, like no one's even done a hysteroscopy on you. Like we need to look inside your uterus. um. And so, so I think often there can be clotting factor issues. That's rule number one. We check out uterine. I call it uterine function tests. I think I made that up, but um, I like want to see the, the function of your uterus. I want not just a saline sonogram. I want a hysteroscopy. And I know you go under anesthesia for a hysteroscopy. It is worth it because saline sanos, I just had a girl who's pregnant naturally right before she got to do IVF. She's 38, same thing, having losses. Doctors were like, egg quality, egg quality, egg quality. I was the first one, her acupuncturist, her fertility coach, get a hysteroscopy. They go in, they're like, oh, you're covered in polyps. They didn't see any polyps on the saline sano. And the REs that I work closely with who love hysteroscopies, they're like, yeah, saline sanos miss things all the time. So a hysteroscopy with an endometrial biopsy. That is super important to test for endometritis, not endometriosis. There are two different things. Endometritis is an infection of the uterine lining, which is a very easy fix. There is chronic endometritis, not such an easy fix, but that could be the reason for losses. So Those are like three things that I look at right there. So with the hysteroscopy, we're looking for scar tissue, even if you've never had a previous pregnancy, but maybe you had losses and you had DNCs, you could have scar tissue. If you had appendicitis in the past, you could have scar tissue. If you had a weird septate in your uterus or something like that, that could be causing your losses. So we do those, those two things. And then there are additional tests like the endotrio, I think, endome trio, is that what it's called? It's the ERA with the Alice and the Emma. I'm a big fan. I I think that's similar to the endometrial biopsy, but that gives us a lot of information about the uterus. And then um, I would also, depending on signs and symptoms though, I'm, I'm thinking endometriosis or I'm thinking some kind of autoimmune situation that is causing an inflammatory or an immune response in the body where the body is literally just attacking the pregnancy. And those are especially in the women that have had multiple losses and Every time we test the fetus, it's genetically normal. And, but then they also show us that they might have Hashimoto's, they might have celiac, they might have another autoimmune condition, and they typically need an autoimmune workup. Um, one of the easiest ways to get one, I mean, I'm not, expenses I know are there, but the pregmune test is one of my favorites because I think it's very thorough um, and it tests for all the autoimmune components and will give you a protocol. Of course, you need a doctor to support that protocol. But that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, I suppose. So it's just it's more testing. It's collecting data as much as possible. And like, again, going back to this woman I just saw in the clinic, that's kind of what I said to her when she came to me. I was like, we're pausing. You get pregnant every time you try, girl, and you're miscarrying that you do not have a fertility issue. You have a pregnancy issue. And so we got to figure that out. And oddly enough, and and maybe some of you guys listening can relate of like, it's such a relief to get the permission to not try because you have so much pressure on like, maybe this one will work, maybe this one will work, or maybe this is the good egg, the one good egg I have left, because that's what they told you. Um, And also, you have to understand that, you know, and and the the one REI work closely with Dr. Murphy, he said it beautifully once um, in an interview, he said, all your eggs are actually good. It's the environment in which they start to divide and, you know, cellular division and, and, w- and when they meet the sperm that can compromise. And so basically like the yolk of the egg where all your chromosomes are, you, there's, there's usually you got all 23 in there and that's pretty good. Um, It's the whites and what kind of, you know, growth factors are missing or inflammatory particles are there that are causing abnormal cellular division. And and that's just, the white is what we do have control over. And, and, and of course we're all born with some bad eggs. I think, you know, at least 20, 20%, we know for certain in, in kind of the average reproductive age. And then maybe it goes up to 40, 50% in women, you know, at 45 and higher. Um, And we just don't have enough data to really actually know. People always try to nail me down. Like, what are my chances? I kind of came up with a rule of thumb of like in your mid forties, you get pregnant. I think you have a 50% chance you'll take that baby home, maybe a 40%, but you know, that's still a pretty good odd actually. Um, so anyway, just, you know, long story short, I think I really firmly believe, of course, eggs go bad and and we all have bad eggs regardless of our age, but but most of the time it's some kind of systemic process process that's going on in the body. That's actually causing them to
0: be bad
1: or for you to have losses.
0: I feel struck by this. Like you don't have a fertility issue. You're getting pregnant. It's a pregnancy issue, which that's very different in terms of how we treat and assess and evaluate. Yeah. A hundred percent.
1: And then of course there are girls, right. Who aren't getting pregnant. I mean, that's, and that's, it's like two different categories though. Yeah. Right. And so, um, but e- either category, unfortunately in our society is pushed to IVF and that's as the only answer. And IVF is also positioned as a guarantee, which unfortunately it's not. And so not to say IVF is amazing. And I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent of integrative medicine and Western medicine. I, I, I love certain fertility doctors. I don't love all of them. I'm not going to lie, but um, but getting that quality care is super important. You just need to also know that like, we're not going to continue to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So like this patient that I keep talking about, she's at a clinic where they just want to do the same thing again. They're just like, oh, you just have, you, your eggs are bad. You had a bad response. I did my job. You get your act together, you know? And it's like, no, that's not a team. I'm sorry. And in this day and age with the internet and online consults, like you have access to every single possible doctor out there. I know it comes at a cost and I'm not underestimating how expensive and traumatic this whole process is, but like to really step back and think of like, okay, do I want to put $400 towards a consult with this guy who's in New York or in California or in, you know, the UK Just to get another opinion, because that that could actually move the ball forward for you faster. And so it might cost you something now, but it's
0: going to save you in the long run. Do you even need IVF is the other question I would ask. And, and w- with the lab evaluation, I hear from patients all the time, they're having pregnancy loss, pregnancy loss, and no one will run anything. It's like the most basic, like you're saying, there's four things on there and you're begging and no one will run anything else. Mm. So I'm just, this is my call to action for everyone to go to your website and download that checklist so that you, you can advocate for yourself. Yeah. And there are in the U S there are ways for you to get those tests on your
1: own. I actually have it listed on that PDF. Um, it's com slash miscarriage in case you forgot um and outside the U.S. like there there are and they're becoming more and more like I feel like when I first started working there was maybe two miscarriage recurrent pregnancy loss doctors that like I knew of Dr. Braverman who now Vidali runs that um and Dr. Beers had written the book Is Your Body Baby Friendly that book's been out a while and then there was like Dr. Cher and Dr. Quack Kim and now there's like I don't know. There's probably like one or two. I, I think there's probably 30 in the U.S. now, which is amazing. Right. And then there's specialists in Italy and there's a specialist in Germany and there's one in Spain. And so we're slowly putting them together and, and it's coming up. And the thing that what sucks about recurrent pregnancy loss is it's one uh, percent of the population is struck with it. And so but if you take one percent of the one in six that are dealing with fertility, it's it's a it's a you know, I, I forget I did the percentages recently. I think it comes out to be like fifteen to twenty percent of women dealing with fertility challenges actually have recurrent pregnancy loss. But the problem is is that most standard IVF clinics are not seeing those patients. And so, when, if you wind up there, they just don't have the skill set to treat you. And what I wish they would do is say, you know what, I'm not an expert in this field. There is some research. Recurrent pregnancy loss does impact 1% of the population. I'm going to get you to the right specialist. Instead, they just say, no, it's, they just bucket it. It's egg quality. That's it. See you later. Do IVF with me. Get genetically tested embryos. Um, and then they usually leave that clinic because then they've miscarried again. Yeah. Oh. I know, which not every case and I'm overgeneralizing, but like, I feel like generally speaking, 20 years of experience, that's kind of the path I see. And so I try to really halt it immediately. of I'm like, okay we're putting everything on the table until we get more testing done. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't work for everyone. And so I'll, I'll usually like similar with um, timeline. I'll just say to them, okay, but if you have one more loss, do you promise me that we'll look for another doctor or we'll do something different? And I always say, I hate to have this conversation with you, but I'm going to have this conversation with you. Mm -hmm. If we do this again, do you promise me that we're going to, and, and then, yeah, usually, um... but they do get there. And that's the one thing too, to like keep hope guys alive is like, it is outable. It really is. It makes me emotional to think about it. But it's like, it's so much trauma and it's so hard. And I hate that you're going through it. But like, it is figure outable. And unfortunately, though, like the way the system is set up, you have to fight for it. You have to be your own advocate. Um, and, and you pay out of pocket for people like us, which is also like, uh, that's upsetting to me, too. I mean, you know, it's just like, but but we're helping you move that ball forward in a way that um, maybe conventional medicine is just, um, you know, the the system's just a bit overwhelmed and, and not everybody's up to date on all the research. And it's hard. That's a full-time job too. I mean, to stay up oh. on the research is a full-time freaking job. It's hard.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like every episode I record, it's really just driving home the collaborative care team like no one person is going to solve all of your problems I'm not going to nobody is going Uh -uh. to and so putting those people together who can collaborate and support you that's going to be the best outcome for everyone
1: I couldn't agree more and it's like and that's the piece it's like it's the you know I think Roseanne Austin calls it the bump squad like I love that it's like that's it's your bump squad and like I remember years ago, my one patient said to me, you know what, like, I'm not, I'm not even talking to my fertility doctor anymore about diet, because every time I bring it up, he always says the same thing of like, diet has nothing to do with your fertility. And so she's like, Amy's my diet and supplement person. This person is my, my massage. This person does my acupuncture. This person is my fertility. Like he collects my eggs or she collects my eggs. And that's what I always say. I'm like, they're really good at that job. Let them do that job. They're awesome at that job. Their labs are great at making embryos. Let them do that job. Don't go to them for these other things because they, unfortunately." If they didn't identify it, I don't know. But then you see some of them, like I now will arm my my patients with, with research. I want you to show this to your doctor. I want you to show this to your doctor. And I'm, I'm really astonished. I feel like the last few years has been like a major shift where they're listening to the patient, they're reading that research paper and they're saying, all right, I'll give you the 20 milligrams of prednisone next time you get pregnant, right. even though I don't know anything about recurrent pregnancy loss, you know. She comes with receipts. She has the PubMed links. It's ready to go. There you go. But I mean, it's also so upsetting that you have to do that. Right. But I think that's just where we're at. And I don't know that it's going to change anytime soon, but I think the patient is getting smarter and I think that's, and more empowered. And, and um, I also, you know, to be super cheesy, uh, that's the kind of mother I want in this world too, raising these children, right? I want you to be empowered, and I want you to, you know, be in your power and feel confident and and know that you are worthy of looking under every rock, and and that's the kind of you know that, that's an awesome mother to be too in this world to empower your children to do the same.
0: Wow, that kind of made me want to cry, Amy. That was really beautiful. Confident conception, empowered parenthood—that's what we're here to do. I I do want to talk to you for fifty thousand years and pick your brain, but unfortunately, time is a thing. And so, as we as we end episodes, I like to bring something fun to our closing. And so, for you, I—you've already told us the importance of minimizing our toxic exposures, and I know that your bathroom cabinet has some real gems in there of tried and true products that you love. Will you tell us just a couple of your top, your favorite clean personal care products that you're using in your house right now?
1: So, I mean, it's not, it's not a selfless um, promo, but I do use all my own skincare products. Amy Rock Beauty is like the, I clean my face with Amy Rock Beauty. I moisturize with Amy Rock Beauty. I use the eye cream. I use the sugar scrub. Um, And then I do for makeup. I like beauty counter. It's kind of just easy, straightforward, clean. I use each and every deodorant. I love their deodorant. I've tried every single non-toxic one out there. The each and every brand works great for me. Um, I use the Desert Essence toothpaste. I use Molly Suds uh, dishwash or laundry detergent. Um, So yeah, I mean, as far as like in my makeup, I don't wear a ton of makeup, but any makeup I wear is beauty counter. Color my hair with Madison Reed. You know, I use non-toxic nail polish Zoya usually or one of those free five, 10 free, whatever. Um, but yeah, I really do practice it all. Um, and I see such a difference in in my life. And I mean, I'm in my later 40s now and I ovulate and menstruate like a rock star still, and my progesterone goes up after every ovulation, and you know, like
0: my FSH
1: is low. Like, I don't know, I'm not bragging. I'm more like, I don't know, you know what I mean?
0: The 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 things that were working. You're letting us know what's possible when we really focus on those lifestyle factors. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, today's conversation has been so valuable and I just want to express my gratitude for sharing all these clinical insights and your real life experience and all of these approachable tips. I think this is a message of hope for those who feel like they've turned over every stone and they don't know where to go next. There's, still work that can be done and building that collaborative care team. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. Thank you. Wow. Listeners, we always appreciate you tuning in into our show's incredible producer, Paolo Martini. Much gratitude. We'll see you all next time. Thank you. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? head over to drkhaliawaddles.com slash podcast, where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.